Looking back now, I can't imagine why my friends put up with me. You know, it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm like, let's sit down and watch a feature length film. Welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And it's January 2022, so that means it's time for a new genre series. And this month was actually a suggestion from one of our listeners, Tyler out of Australia. Thank you, Tyler, for giving us this month's genre, which is the parody genre. And today's movie we're discussing regarding the parody genre is the classic and one of the, probably the best of the genre, and that is the 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Before we do that, a little bit of housekeeping. This past month in December, we've been promoting our 200th episode, which is coming up. It's very near, and we need your help with putting it together. Thomas and I will be sitting down to take questions from you guys, and we'd like to hear what you guys have to say. So um, I thank everyone who submitted questions so far. Uh, We've got a lot of great questions for the show, but we need a few more. Uh, And you still have time. Get Get it into us by January 14th. Uh, you can send them to us on social channels like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also email us at cinenationpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave us a voicemail with your question at 818-514-5714. Again, that number is 818-514-5714. You can ask us about movies, how we put the show together weekly, uh, music, and honestly, anything entertainment-based. We'll do our best to answer whatever question you have. All right, so let's now dive in to the parody genre first and talk a little bit about it and talk about kind of what we think of. So Thomas, when you think of the parody genre, what's the kind of the first thing you think of? That's a, uh, that's a genre that's very, I'm very fond of. It was integral (laughs) in my childhood. Uh, So this movie's definitely one that comes to mind. Also our director week later in the month is Mel Brooks. I was obsessed with Mel Brooks when I was, maybe like 10 to 12 13 um yeah you, you sent an article in our prep materials today that was kind of talking about how monty python yeah. is like weirdly integral for children and like how you interpret it a joke weirdly, and, <laughs> yeah, it weirdly is yeah yeah and and i, I can definitely feel that because this was something we we used to when my um when my parents friends would all get together like once a summer we would all get like the whole all the families together and we'd always have one night that was like movie night and they would show us like we, I remember watching Monty Python with all that. They would show us movies that were funny to them when they yeah. were probably in like college. And yeah. so we did Monty Python. I remember watching Young Frankenstein and like having to yell at the moms to like stop quoting it because so many <laughs> of us like hadn't seen it yet. It was like stop saying the lines before they happen. Yeah. Uh, but then those those became the movies that I would then seek out like this was right in the era that we switched between VHS and DVD. So like I had some on VHS and then. I went out and bought money, you know, uh, I went out and bought this one. As soon as it came out on DVD, I went out and bought the DVD box set of Mel Brooks's movies when they came out. So, so these, these were movies that I loved and I feel like I was introduced to all of the classics about three to four years before the, the, for better or for worse, renaissance of (laughs) <laughs> spoof movies in the in the early to mid 2000s when they brought it back and then promptly killed it um yeah yeah T- those, so i did I'm see re- i did see many of those in theaters hoping that one was gonna stick and came out i mean at this when i was 14 I, I gotta be honest when i was 14 i had a good time watching epic movie 
I love that you bring that one up because when I watched that, I was like, this is the worst film I've ever seen before in my life. <laughs> That's what I saw movie. It, opening weekend in theaters oh man uh, that was that was a rental for me and i remember being like what is this this is terrible because it was like it was the epic movie it was the date movie mm-hmm. um i remember the one that i actually do remember liking at that moment was probably superhero movie was the one that i kind of liked i think it'd be kind of funny looking at that looking at that now because superheroes have become more dominant in our mm-hmm. main in our mainstream audience than it was when that movie came out like that that's what's always fascinating to me when you see someone try to tackle a genre when the genre isn't hasn't fully formed in a way mm-hmm. like the superhero movie, movie genre is there but like it wasn't to the point of where it is now like now there's so much like there's so much you could do like wh- like it's like an example not the knock on marvel but it's like you just like every movie is going to end with the same type battle scene and mm-hmm. we have to make sure sh- and, and they could do a whole thing on that and when superhero movie came out it was it was just really like it was it was the batman it was the dark knight and like superman returns and stuff like that and x-men and spider-man but not as much as it is today surprisingly yeah Um, well and we've talked about this a little bit as we've touched on some of the other movies with you know when we did johnny dangerously and when we did mm -hmm. like bride of frankenstein but when i was you know some of these when they when they brought back all these spoof movies it was so when you watch them, it's just it was a so grab. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's so contingent on you having seen those movies, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and it doesn't function if you haven't seen the movies that they're making fun of. Whereas mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I saw like we talked about, I saw Young Frankenstein long before before I saw Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. I saw Johnny Dangerously long before I saw you know Little Caesar or any of those kind of um, Scarface movies. or any yeah. of those, uh, and and so. Yeah, those those movies function on their own. The, and some of the jokes function. There's plenty of references. And you know, I was the New York Times review for Monty Python today was all about how it's specifically spoofing this King Arthur movie that came out like the year before it. I've never yeah. seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it does not lessen my appreciation yeah. of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. So I think that's definitely one of the strengths to I've also I love airplane. I've never seen airport. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I know that airplane is a spoof of airport. Never seen it. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and that's a big key. It's like what kind of takes the, the good ones from the bad ones is that like you have some sort of narrative where it's like you don't have to see those other movies to get in on the joke. It's like, mm-hmm. like you said, I think the one they talk about, it was like uh, Brisson's Lancelot and it was a very serious take on Lancelot and how like the audience, I think when it came out, were laughing at Lancelot because it reminded them so much of Holy Grail, but it was done in a very serious tone and everyone mm-hmm. just thought it was funny. Um, and that's kind of, I think you said the key of Young Frankenstein's where it feels like a universal monster movie but it's just through the lens of mel brooks and Mm -hmm. gene wilder and with these the later i don't know if renaissance is the right word to describe (laughs) that the trend of uh, reanimation reanimation yeah i I think it's that like that that was where like it became just about the jokes yeah like it's like with the other movies i'm not saying the narrative is strong because i think holy grail is an example where it feels like there's a very loose narrative that's tied together by sketches and bits but yeah. because a, of that narrative a, it works it's a sketch show where they just decided to theme all the sketches after yeah basically uh, 
roundtable nights. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it works. But I do think, too, I think we have to get into this is that, like, I think in order to really tackle the genre, and we I think we said this with Mel Brooks early on, when we talked about Brian Frankenstein, is that, like, you kind of have to have a love for the genre. Mm-hmm. And, like, you're trying to. An example. This is an example. I this past year with Only Murders in the Building is a very similar thing where it's like, it's kind of a parody of the true crime uh, genre of like podcasts and everything. But in turn, it becomes a part of that genre because it does the parody so well because it's very loving and yeah. uh, towards it. I think Galaxy Quest is another example of that that does that with like Star Trek where like there's always a joke that, like it's one of the best Star Trek movies ever made because it just captures the love of it's lovingly making fun of it i think i think that's a great point so when when you make a movie called vampires suck we already know what your thoughts are yeah regarding the twilight movies exactly (laughs) and like and that and that should just try we're we're trying to make fun of it when the other one's just like no no no, we really love this but like what if this happens instead is kind of Mm -hmm. the thing like what what yeah what what if like what if what if it's not uh, Frankenstein, but what if it's grandson that comes up and has to do the his his grandfather's work that he's been trying to get rid of his entire life? That's kind of a, it's a funny premise. And so you have to have love for or even like, again, we'll talk about with Brooks a lot. It's like Brooks's example where like he does high anxiety, which is a very much a, a take off of a Hitchcock movie. And Hitchcock thought it was hilarious because he's like, he nails like what I what I do. Mm. And. I think that's the big key of the genre that separates the good from the bad is that you have to have a love for it. And it can't just be purely about, we're in a rag on these movies that have been made before. Yeah. Um, and that's what you, like you said with these, like with the epic movies and the date movies and the superhero movies with the meet the Spartans or whatever. It's just like, it's contingent on you seeing those previous movies and, and knowing those moments to get the joke. And with even some like, like example, we're going to be talking about later uh, in the month with like Austin Powers. Like I saw Austin Powers several times and many times before I ever saw most James <laughs> Bond films. Like as we talked about in the James Bond episode, I didn't really see James Bond until COVID basically all the movies of, of that genre or that series. But when watching like Thunderball and things, I'm like, Oh, this is just Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. And I never had to, I never, I never had to see those movies to get Austin Powers because there was, I think, a character you could easily follow and a narrative you could easily follow, and the jokes weren't contingent on you seeing that. It, it allows you to enjoy the movie more if you've seen those movies to get the joke, but you don't have to to have seen it before. Is basically yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um. Th- there are there are other things of this genre beforehand. But I think Holy Grail, as we'll talk about, I think kind of ushers in the beginning of kind of the golden age of this genre. And maybe also just like when looking at kind of an interesting moment in comedy, because with Holy Grail, it comes out in 75. What else is happening in 75? SNL starting starting up in 75 uh, that at the end of the or in like October of 75. This coming out in April 75. So there's a weird, interesting movement of comedy that's occurring at the beginning in the mm-hmm. mid-70s right here, specifically in the U.S. Even though this is coming from the U.K., it has a m- bigger impact in the U.S. than it does in the U.K. So yeah, so as we said, we're talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And 
it came out in 1975. You can stream the movie currently. It's on, or currently it's on Netflix. Um, and you probably rent it on whatever uh, what other platform you, you uh, watch movies on. So it stars Monty Python Troop, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. Um, I'll give a little backstory to them later of who the who Monty Python is. Um, but yeah, it's the and Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, two of the people of Monty Python, are also co-directors on it. And then all the group are writers on the film. So you kind of mentioned it earlier, Thomas, but when you think of Monty Python, the Holy Grail, like what do you, what's your history with it? <laughs> you kind yeah, of said this it. Was but... one, this was one, like I said, I was kind of shown by my parents and my parents' friends and then sought out on, on DVD afterwards and then made any of my friends who came over to my house. I can't, looking back now, I can't imagine, I can't imagine like why my friends put up with me. You know, at like 12... <laughs> At 12, they were like, yeah, let's go over to Thomas's house. And I was like, you know, it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm like, let's sit down and watch a feature length film. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have any video games in my house. It was either like, go play outside or let's sit down and watch a movie. And so many times I just was like, you guys have to watch this movie. Uh Um, But yeah, this was this was one for sure that I uh, I showed often in in my house. (laughs) In the Horton household. Yeah. Yeah, this is one. That article I sent you, um, that uh, about kind of the, the the Monty Python and like teenage uh, life, basically, is what it's about. And I, I, when reading it, I was like, "Oh my god, this was me in high school," because mm-hmm. it, pure, it it perfectly described m- my friend group and myself and our connection to Holy Grail. Cause it was talking, talks about how like you can say a line and you're, and you hear that person say, you're, Oh, we're in the club. We've mm. seen it. And I think back to the friends of like my buddies who were in theater, who were not really like theater kids. It's like my buddy justice who I've, you've heard me talk about um, big Monty Python, the Holy Grail fan would always quote it all the time. And he's not your typical theater kid is he's mm-hmm. a very Southern Southern guy. And and then I had like the 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 girl I had a crush on loved Holy Grail and I was like we can relate um, because we can <laughs> quote this movie um, and like you would just spend you could spend so much time like quoting this film back and forth of like remember that part or that part and that was like so that article kind of talks about I was, like that was very much like my high school years it was one of those movies where like. Not everyone knew it, but you were in the small club that did, and you felt like you were a little bit smarter because you like understood the comedy yeah. of Monty well, Python also, and it, Holy Grail. It made you feel like kind of mature and refined too, because adults yeah. knew it. You know, you could be adults like twelve yeah. and be like, you know, dropping lines, and and adults would be like, "Oh wow, yeah, I love that movie." And you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm cool." Even if I didn't see that much, it's like it was just very much in the vernacular of my friend group of of uh, the knights of knee or the black knight it's only a flesh wound like all that was very much uh kind of in our speak and then i think the last time i saw it before we rewatched it was you and i saw it at the movie at the new art in la mm-hmm. if you remember that was the last yeah. time i saw it uh for a midnight and so like it's just it's constantly and i hadn't seen it in a while but it's still it's still held up then and spoiler alert i think it still holds up now um but we'll dive into that um so yeah that's kind of how we came that's how i came about it so you came about it so let's dive into how the movie actually came about 
with history of how it got to production. So, the Monty Python comedy troupe was actually a combination of several comedy groups that existed during the 1960s. Terry Jones and Michael Palin met at Oxford University in the UK when they were performing at the Oxford Review. Uh, Graham Chapman and John Cleese met at Cambridge University while performing with the Footlights, a, uh, a Cambridge comedy review, and a year later, Eric Idle would meet them at Cambridge as well. Then, the only non-UK member, an uh, uh, a American citizen, would be Terry Gilliam, who John Cleese met on tour for the foot, uh, while he was in New York City for, for, on tour for the Footlights, is what it was. Um, the UK members of Monty Python would first come together in 1966 when they worked on the BBC satirical television show, The Frost Report. Um, Gilliam would soon join the UK members in some kind of capacity on their next television show, Do Not Adjust Your Set, where he drew sketches and created animated sequences for the final episodes of the show. Soon after, BBC offered the group of John Cleese and, and uh, Graham Chapman a television show while Tim's television offered Idol, Gilliam, Jones, and Palin a television show as well. Cleese was reluctant to do a two-man show with just Chapman because Chapman was apparently difficult to work with because of his erratic personality. Um, Cleese would then invite Palin to work with them and Palin would agree because the deal that they were under, uh, the television network didn't have studio space until a year later. And so Palin said, screw it, let's do it. And then Palin convinced Cleese to allow them to add Jones and Idol to the team. And those two would is eventually want to bring in Gilliam to join them as well. And that's how their influential TV show, Monty Python's Flying Circus, was born. Um, the show would prove to be a, a big success in the UK. But soon after, John Cleese would actually leave the show after its third season because he felt like there wasn't that much for him anymore after those first three seasons. In between production of the third season and fourth season, the group decided to embark on their first proper feature film. Because in 1971, they had put out their first film, and now for something completely different, but it was made up of only sketches, and there was no through-line narrative mm -hmm. that, that, that tied them all together. It was just sketches. Um, but they wanted to make a story that was based on the Arthurian legend, King Arthur. But the first draft actually took place during two different periods. Half of the script was the Middle Ages, and the other half was modern day. Uh, Terry Jones, who was the who ended up being the co-director and was one of the, the the members of the troupe, was really interested in medieval history and really loved it, and would later write several books on medieval history or stories took place during the medieval times. Soon, pitch they only do a story about the Middle Ages, or it only took place during the Middle Ages, and the rest of the cast would agree. Um, I think in the original script. It originally ended with them stealing the grail from a place called Herod's department store <laughs> because yeah. Herod had, because King Herod has everything. Um, uh, the group agreed that Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones would direct the film Two people who had never directed a film before besides like a few, just things with their friends. Um, I think it was funny. It was Gilliam was friends with Harry Shear from mm -hmm. who's in Simpsons, but was in this is spinal tap, another parody film. Um, and they had shot like 16 millimeter films together when they were like, when they were like in New York, I believe, uh, before Gilliam went to the UK, Gilliam and Jones said it was a learning experience in which they would learn how to learn about filmmaking while actually making a feature length film. Um, even though Monty Python had an audience in the UK, no one wanted to put up the money for the film. None of the production companies or studios there. And I think they even said they went to the U S and they didn't want to either. So the Pythons 
would soon turn to rock stars to help finance the film because they were big fans of the Pythons. In 2021, Eric Idle revealed the film was financed by eight investors, and they were Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, who apparently took their money that they made from Dark Side of the Moon to put into this movie, Hmm. Um, Jethro Tull member uh, Ian Anderson, the film's co-producer Michael White, and the Heartaches, which is a cricket team that was founded by lyricist Tim Rice, and there were three record companies as well. Gilliam has also said like Elton John as well, but I'm not entirely sure if that one's true. Well, and then Um, didn't George Harrison produce Life of Brian? George Harrison produced Life of Brian. That's a funny story. I'll tell it real quickly. So Harrison, so they no one to produce Life of Brian either. Um, And they somehow sent to George Harrison. Somehow the script got to George Harrison. And Eric Idle called the guys and goes, hey, George Harrison wants to make it. He just, he read the script last night, called me up. And he's like, I'm going to put up the money for this. And they go, why? He goes, I want to see the movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, I want to see it. It seems funny. Um, and that's how Life of Brian got made. And like, there was a great YouTube comment. They go, think about it. We only saw Life of Brian because George Harrison really wanted to see it. That's yep. the only reason why he could have just paid for it and then kept it all to himself. No, yeah. And he's like, no, nah, I'm good to the world. Um, but yeah, so Gilliam stated that the rock stars, the musicians, were looking to invest in something because they saw it as a good tax write-off due to the UK income tax being as high as ninety percent at the time. Wow. Yeah, he was like, we just kind of got lucky. Like they, they just they they wanted to dump money into like something that could lose money. Gilliam compared the experience to Mel Brooks as the producers is what it was, uh, is what he said. Gaining money from them was like um, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam would spend two weeks touring every castle in Britain to find locations for the film. They landed on several castles in Scotland. However, two weeks before production began. The Department of the Environment of Scotland contacted them, stating the film was not consistent with the dignity of the fabric of the buildings. So they were not allowed to shoot there. That's uh, probably a jo- good point. Yeah, Jones and Gilliam couldn't believe that a place that was known for torture wouldn't want a little comedy there. <laughs> Gilliam's like, there's really blood on the walls, and you're telling me you don't want us here because of that. Um, all the cast, all these castles, it seems, were owned by the government, which was like kind of like the national park system, I guess, here um and that's why i kind of step, stepped in and like wouldn't allow him to shoot there uh jones and gilliam would then scramble to find new castles hope hopping in gilliam's sports car to drive around scotland for the next few days they eventually found two privately owned castles castle dune and castle stalker very unique names mm-hmm. uh, castle stalker would only be used for the final castle scene when they're walking away, for, like the water surrounds or whatever, it's kind of like a little island. Uh, the rest of the castles were just Castle Dune, and that would fill in for all the castles in the film, which is done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. That it's only one castle. Um, so finally, with the scripts and financing and locations, now the movie was ready to go to Scotland and film. So Thomas, what are some of your, what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie? Okay, uh, well. <laughs> All of them. I know it's yeah. when I was when I was rewatching it and thinking back on this movie. I thought like if I had to pick one sequence that I think is just pitch perfect from start to finish, that is the tale of Sir Lancelot. I think is, <laughs> and it's and it's one that's grown on me. It wasn't my favorite when I was a kid, and it's not it's yeah. not the most quotable, but no. I think it is. I think it is pitch perfect and it's got a little bit of everything it's got physical humor 
it's got like that little like who's on first with eric idol and yeah. um and, and michael palin where he's like and don't let anyone in except for you and let him leave no don't let him leave so yeah for anyone who, who can't remember which one the tale of sir lancelot is we meet this young <laughs> prince terry jones who's being forced to marry a girl by his father played by michael palin who's incredible i i love michael palin might be my favorite member of monty python and this character it's it's so like he didn't normally kind of play this character that yeah i feel like normally he would have been cast as more like the terry jones type in yeah. this scene but he's absolutely killing it and uh so it's a political marriage but the uh the prince doesn't want to get married so he, he sends an urgent message for help which sir lancelot receives and comes to the castle and like kills eight people <laughs> at this wedding before he realizes that it's not he doesn't need to be killing anyone and uh, everyone in it is just so good like you've got yeah so like i said you've got fiscal humor the great sequence when lancelot's just coming in and killing everybody um you've got probably the best editing joke of the whole movie i think with the uh lancelot running at the castle yeah I, I and agree. you just keep cutting back and forth from the guards and they cut back to him and it doesn't look like he's made any progress and then you cut yeah. back to the guards and you cut back to him and he's doing this it's just looped and then, but then you they loop it three times you know rule of threes they loop it three times so you're like oh okay the joke is he's just never making progress and then they just cut and he's there <laughs> <laughs> he stabs the um, he stabs, stabs the one him. guard the, the guard i think is also great of just like eating an apple and watching like what the yeah. hell is this yeah, and then the other guard just goes like, "Hey, <laughs> <laughs> it's all so good." And and the honestly, one of the ones I I, I quote the most out of this movie now, and you know maybe it's because all the other quotes are played out, but like I absolutely <laughs> love Michael Palin's speech when he's deciding. You know, he kills so Lancelot gets there. They end up no one can stand the sun, so they throw him out the window. And then Palin decides he's going to like use this to his advantage. And he comes out and he's got that speech. He's like, one guy's like, he killed my auntie. And he's like, this is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let us not bicker over who killed who. <laughs> and it's, oh, and then the kid comes back and they, the whole sequence, they've been like building up to like a musical scene. And Palin keeps yeah. coming in and like cutting it stop out that, before. Stop that, no, stop that. No singing, stop, stop that. Um, <laughs> And then it finally just ends with the, everyone doing really lackluster choreography. I that that is like if if you had to cut you know a ten minute sliver out of this movie and take it to a desert island with me, it would be it would be that one. That sequence, yeah, because I think too like I know Graham Chapman is in the scene in the mm -hmm. sequence, but he doesn't have a big part. He's the yeah, other he's the guard. guard that keeps hiccuping. Yeah, yeah, with idol, but it feels like idol's in it can. twice. He's he's uh, yeah, he's Lancelot's uh, I guess servant or whatever message for you sir and again i love the reoccurring bit of just like uh say the princess uh for you since you're about to die it's like well i'm feeling pretty better right now like, that's the bit of like since the bring out yeah. your dad I'm well like, that's a, that's I'm another great rule of threes in that i mean i know they make that reference kind of throughout the movie it was like i'm not quite dead but just in that, in that sequence they do it three yeah. times because they've got yeah. him first and then they've got the father of the bride and then they bring the prince back in <laughs> he's like he's not quite dead dead but it's like the, I love the father. It's it's what Palin does. It's the like, he was. Uh, it's like our dead father. He's alive. His more her her mortally wounded father. He's feeling pretty pretty better. It's like his his 
uh, her father who was on who was about to get better then all of a sudden the clutches of death like grabs him or whatever yeah, and then ter- that's terry he's... jones again you got terry jones twice in that one terry <laughs> jones is like oh he's dead now <laughs> but again i love the la- again like the landslide bit of just like but also kind of like the capture like what we think of the era of like a hero mm-hmm. but that's the funny thing about lance a lot is like he just comes in just like killing people not asking any questions mm-hmm. and then you're like wait a minute what am i doing <laughs> like that's kind of the parody oh, that I we love see the, in action the, films the beat where they they explain what's going on he's like oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and then they bring him back outside and everyone's like hey he killed so-and-so and then he just like immediately so goes back going- into <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I got carried away. I got carried away. That's honestly, too, that's the beauty of Monty Python specifically is there's there, you can break, like, you can get into, if you're if you're a big Monty Python head, like, almost everyone in that troop represented, like, a different type of comedy. And you can especially yeah. see it in the things they went on to do individually after they broke up. But um, I think that specific sequence, just all of them come to play. It's it's like bizarre. Like Terry Jones's character is so bizarre. Everyone's doing great physical comedy. You've got some really witty lines in there. Like I said, there's some some really solid filmmaking at work in there. Yeah, I think I think it's one of their one of their best sequences, kind of all together to give you like a flavor of what everyone was bringing to the table. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. We are here today to witness the union of two young people in the joyful bond of holy wedlock. Unfortunately, one of them, my son Herbert, has just fallen to his death. But I don't want to think I've lost a son so much as gained a daughter. For since the tragic death of her father... He's not quite dead, since the near fatal wounding of her father. He's getting better. For since her own father, who, when he seemed about to recover, suddenly felt the icy hand of death upon him. Oh, he's died. And I want his only daughter to look upon me as her old dad, in a very real and legally binding sense. Well, I think it's so good about the the, the knights, uh, the, uh, King Arthur and his knights, is that everyone feels that they have a defined like character. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the two big ones are Lancelot and and Sir Robin, where like Sir Keitel is just like he's the guy who's a knight, but like probably shouldn't be because he's a coward, mm-hmm. basically. And Lancelot's the brave, like no nonsense. I'm a hero, but really just like a, he's a sociopath, basically um and ask me your questions i'm not afraid afraid yeah <laughs> and and i and i was like is that, is that it and it's like runs up like uh, i'm sir robin uh of camelot <laughs> i seek the grail and then it's like what is the capital of Asteria? uh talk about bits like i love again the african and european swallows comes back mm-hmm. into play that's from the very beginning of the movie i think it's referenced a few times in between but then it's just well, like that it's the great payoff. shot of of Sir Bedivere just like it's just randomly a shot of Sir Bedivere like sending off a swallow with a coconut tied to it at some point <laughs> in the movie. But yeah, it's like I just think all that stuff. I think that sequence is fun. 
Um, and who's playing? Who's playing the? Is it Gilliam that's playing the, the bridge keeper? Uh, yeah, soothsaying bridge keeper. Yeah, but it, it is Terry Gilliam because he's 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 Arthur's servant who's yeah. doing the coconuts. Another um, one I loved when I was a when I was a kid. My favorite was uh, the the rabbit. The rabbit's fine. I think that's <laughs> that's one that just like the I first. I told you. I told you. <laughs> I told you, Tim. There are some who call me Tim. He came to the video and it was talking to Ed Helms. He goes. I love that sequence because, like, not only the pause, it's the question. Mm-hmm. Tim, Tim, like he's like doesn't even know what his name is. Yeah, that that one's so good. He's he, Cleese is great in that one, but yeah, and he's like, look, look at the bones. <laughs> you won't get. That's just a rabbit. I told you. I just love it. That's the. I told you. It just says it over and over again. It it takes again, and when talking about parody, it takes these ideas of heroes or these again these legends, and just it's those little things of Arthur being just kind of like a pompous asshole of like I am King mm-hmm. Arthur, like King of the Britons, King of the Who, like it's he's so up on himself, and then it's the like run away, like once he first sees kind of trouble, it's like I'm a coward, I am getting out of here, and it's great. He's got huge sharp, he can leap about. Look at the bones! Go on, boys, chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit suit coming right up. Look! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I warned you. I've done it again. I warned you, but did you listen to me? Oh, no, you knew it all, didn't you? Oh, it's just a harmless little bunny, isn't it? Well, it's always the same. I always oh, tell them, do they listen to me? Oh, no. Shut up! One that we, I always gravitated towards growing up was the Black Knight. The Black Knight was always mm-hmm. like a sequence that like my friends and I just loved. And that's when we quoted the most. Like, it's only a flesh wound. And I think John Cleese sees the voice of it. It's just amazing. Of just, well, I love, it's the setup of like, is that Black Knight just like kills the Green Knight with like ease, basically like, stabs him in the head and walks away, and then just gets literally chopped to pieces mm-hmm. pretty easily when King Arthur fights him, and you're just like, it's the funny buildup, it's the contrast of the two of like this big brutal fight, and then this happens, and it's just like he's still fighting, even with no arms, no legs, and is like. Oh. I'll bite your ankles or whatever it is. Like he just, he doesn't give up. There's a couple of sequences, especially knowing that those Jones and Gilliam's kind of first time directing. There's three <laughs> specific sequences I can think of where they build tension like really well as part of the joke. Uh-huh. And that, you know, that when they're riding up on the black Knight and you're getting the, the like cut, cuts, yeah. the cuts of them riding up mixed yeah. with this like intense sword fight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they do something very similar later on with the knights who say knee where it's yeah. it's almost they, they shoot it almost like a horror movie when they're riding yeah. through the woods and you've got rustling and you catch sight yeah. of something brushing by and they don't know what it's going to be and then you just get the knee knee um, knee so yeah there's especially editing i think that the editing is and really editing, strong in this movie for for comedy especially for guys who like it really is their first film mm-hmm. and i know like t- it's because t- their television stuff yeah they're, they're filming but like it's just sketches like it's just it's just sketches they're not really using editing as much in terms of this is that they made this cinematic basically is the key they made the joke cinematic um because of the editing with those two with those sequences you're talking about with the lancelot sequence 
like they're using they're using editing as as a form of comedy. I think that's that's sometimes I don't, I won't say underrated, but I feel like sometimes I don't realize how how much editing plays in the comedy. I think sometimes people just say it's just the writing of it or the performance of it, but editing has such a if you're just a frame off of a cut for a joke, it it will kill the joke. I feel like, mm-hmm. and and this and they really kind of understand how to kind of play the visual the 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 joke and the in the cutting of it all like you said victory is mine we thank thee lord that in thy mind ah! come on then what have at you <laughs> you are indeed brave tonight but the fight is mine oh i don't know eh look you stupid bastard you've got no arms left yes i have look it's just a flesh wound look stop that chicken Chicken! Look, I'll have your leg. Right! Right, I'll do you for that. You what? Come here! What are you gonna do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible! You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs! How about you? Come on then. Alright. We call it a draw. I mean, another scene I love is it's it's the uh, it's it's Robin's like minstrel, uh, mm-hmm. it's, like singers who are just singing about Robin, not Robin's greatest uh, fights or, or triumphs, it's his greatest failures, basically. So Robin ran away. It's like Sir Robin just runs away. Brave, brave Sir Robin, he bravely ran away. And the, they 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 call that back very well later on when they all join back up together you can just kind of hear like as robin is approaching they're still like listing off ways that <laughs> he may have died and i feel like they bring a little bit of that melody back in the lancelot sequence i thought i heard a little bit of it when at the party when he shows up and starts killing everyone mm-hmm. i feel like they're playing that that kind of riff i mean another good one so we, we talked about the the whole like the uh he's not really dead I think the bring out your dead sequence is also mm-hmm. just a, a very memorable and fantastic. No, one more scene for me. Uh, you talk about Michael Palin. Cause I agree. Michael Palin might be my favorite Python as well. And I love just the, like his banter with King Arthur when they show up, it's like, Oh, that's a dictatorship or whatever. When he's just like, and I, it's like, Oh, I'm feeling repressed. I'm being repressed. When he just keeps yelling at Arthur mm-hmm. when they're having the whole political discussion about uh, about what Britain is and what their village is and everything. And I think, yeah, I think Palin just has great range in this movie. It showcases like everything he could do as a comedian. Because um, Cleese, like John Cleese is great, but I th- it feels like it's always John Cleese mm-hmm. in every role. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think he's, I think he's very unique and very specific but Palin is just all over the board yeah. in what he's doing. I mean, as as much as John John Cleese's kind of shtick is always like he's the most kind of posh one, and then you're like, oh, you get to see that like well put together guy get kind of wacky. But like, yeah. Palin j- just disappears into every character. Like he didn't really have a persona because he threw himself so deeply into I agree. the characters. I agree because Idols I, Idols very much like Cleese, where he has a specific persona. Where idols kind of just like I won't say he's the loser, but it's like he 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 always feels like the second guy after like it's it's always him trying to live up to someone else like Cleese or whatever. 
Mm. Not him as a person. His characters are always like they're quick witted, but it's like it's, it's he's playing either the Sir Robin character or he's playing who's on first guy, uh, mm-hmm. the knight. Basically, he's he's either one of those two guys. Is what it kind of feels like. Uh, Gilliam is just kind of like there a lot of the time. <laughs> he's there. He's there to make the. He's there to do the illustrations. Yeah, yeah. He's just kind of there, and he. But I, I think he has a great face for everything, like with the coconuts and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like Terry Jones, um, because Terry Jones, I think, just does great voices mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, King of the Who. Uh, and then I also love him as again, Belvid. Uh, uh, yeah, Sir Bedivere. So Bedivere, when they're trying to decide, like, is she a witch or is she not a witch? <laughs> one, of, one of my other favorite, like, kind of throwaway lines in the whole movie is when, when he's walking them through the, like, whole duck equation. And he's like, and what else floats? And he's like, very small rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, oh, no, I think it's fantastic. Uh, how do you feel about uh the french soldiers sequence because i feel like that's when it gets brought up a lot by people no go away or i shall don't you a second time <laughs> um yeah i think it's a blast i think i think that's such a <laughs> such a strong i don't even know if you can call it the strong intro to the movie because it like it just starts and it does not drop but like yeah to go from like the the swallows that you've got two coconuts and you're banging them together <laughs> Like, that's great just to go right into that, like, debating what kind of government yeah. entity uh, written is <laughs> into the bring out your dead, into the the um, the witch. Yeah. So strong. But yeah, I I, I love the, the, the French knights and, and, you know, obviously the the rabbit, the the Trojan rabbit and then the runaway mm. is <laughs> it's a good time. It's fun. I mean, it really is. I, I really is where I think every scene just like m- majority of the time, I think there might be one scene that I think stays a little too long, but I feel like they all, they don't overstay their welcome mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Like I think the one scene that might is actually the siren scene. Yeah. That's, that's I, my, that's, that, for that's, me, that's, that's, that's the, the weakest, weakest that's the weakest one where I'm like, okay, this just feels like, yeah, I get the joke. They're all, they're all hot and they won't, you know, they're all, they're yeah. all hot and they, and they want the, the guy who's the virgin to like, to have sex with them all. Cool. Yeah. Got it. And like, that's, and it almost feels like they themselves recognize that's the weakest scene. Cause that's when you have the, like, when they, when she breaks camera, like, I think the scene's going well. I think they're the most, of the other scenes before. And they're <laughs> just like, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like it's part of the joke. Um, but that's the one I just think it's it's the little bit it's the weakest of them all. Oh, last I love the credits of the movie, the <laughs> opening credits of the movie. Uh, we'll go into the, how that happened, um, but I think that's amazing of what they do because it show it sets off the tone so well. Like you now are aware what movie you're in with those with those credits and what they do. I think that's the big key with comedy, especially something that like look because I also think the cinematography and the production design of this because they shoot in Scotland looks great. Like I think that's mm-hmm. what helps it hold up where like it really feels like it's a King Arthur story. Um, it doesn't feel like a set or anything. And having those title sequence, the, those opening credits, the, the subtitles uh, with, with the, the moose and going to, I guess Sweden is where they're going to is where mm-hmm. it's at, what they're promoting. Like it just sets you in like, okay, this we can laugh here. 
yeah. we're allowed to laugh in this type movie no matter if it looks bloody because that's actually a big thing that people thought it was too bloody at one point because the black knight sequence and all the killing is uh, the, the squirting too, was, of blood yes yeah, yeah. it's like i think they actually want they i think the studio this might be jumping ahead i think the studio or whoever won to cut that sequence out completely they did and then gilliam added it back in there last minute without them knowing about it because he thought it worked well that's that 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 brings us back you're talking about the, the cinematography that that brings us back to another point that I think we've discussed before when, when talking about um, the kind of parody movies that work and the ones that don't is they they mention it in the New York Times review, but that it kind of it's trying to evoke the kind yeah. of dour cinematography of that previous Lancelot movie. Yeah. And we've talked about it with Young Frankenstein before, but the ones that really work are the ones that commit. Yeah. Even Fully. in the the way that the movie is made. Yeah. Whereas, you know, scary movie four is lit to hell and doesn't look <laughs> like a scary movie at all. You know, yeah. maybe in maybe in one, you know, they tried to make one look like Scream. Yeah. But at some point they lost their way. And obviously Epic movie doesn't look like a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Like, yeah. So that that is that is one one place that you, you have to commit for sure is that if, if you don't nail the visual style, nobody's going to buy into it. Yeah agree completely i think this does it incredibly well because i think they I, I have it later but i'll say it here's like they were influenced by uh pasolini films like neo-realist italian films and ingmar bergman films is what it was where the movies mm-hmm. they're looking at besides mel brooks they said but like it was mel brooks and then pasolini and bergman in terms of the visual style of the movie and i think it nails it i think that's what really kind of elevates the movie to where it kind of becomes uh I don't know if timeless is the right word, but I think it becomes uh, authentic mm-hmm. is the thing. I think it feels authentic because of that. All right. Moving on to onset life for this movie. Most people say that your first day will determine the tempo and mood of your set for the rest of the production. So you usually want to start off your day with a very easy day to help you get through the production. Right, mm-hmm. Thomas? That's usually the way to go. Yep. Well, first day of shooting for this movie was not was nothing but easy. Um, for the first day of filming, they were shooting the Bridge of Death sequence in Glencoe, Scotland. A big sequence to start off with, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, apparently, it took a half hour just to get up to the area they were filming at, carrying, <laughs> all, carrying all the equipment. As they got up there, they soon realized that it was very high. Uh, and Graham Chapman, who was apparently a mountaineer, was even paralyzed by fear for how high up it was. But it was also because Chapman was suffering from alcoholism. Uh, which prompted trembling bouts of forgetfulness, and he began suffering from acrophobia due to this. Uh, it sounds like he would quit drinking for the duration of filming to stay even keel after this sequence. Uh, they finally set up the camera for the first shot, and right when they began filming, the camera broke, with all the gears inside the camera falling apart and falling out once they opened it up. Uh, oh my God. It, was the o- it was the only camera they had... <laughs> And it also recorded sound. Uh, they were able to put it back together for the day, but they could not sync the sound back up. So they could only shoot non-sound scenes on their first day. The only issue was that none of the shots in the Bridge of Death sequence didn't, or always all had sound. So they couldn't shoot any scenes, any shots from that scene, basically. Um, <laughs> oh when looking God. back, when looking back on the film, all of the Monty Pythons would call the call the shoot a nightmare. Uh, Terry Jones said he was always fi- he is always filled with angst when watching it years later because it reminded him of how horrible it was actually making the movie. Um, 
10 days before shooting, after the castle fiasco, when they couldn't find the right, they lost their castles, they were told by production that all of them would be sharing a room, or all of them be sharing rooms at a low-rent hotel in Scotland because they couldn't afford anything else. They soon realized after filming began, the hotel they were staying at did not, or they soon realized once they got to the hotel, uh, they did not have a phone. Uh, so production manager Julian Doyle stated that he would stood out, he stood outside a payphone trying to get 200 weapons and 200 costumes and from London for the shoot. It seems like majority of their money went to props and costumes for the film. Um, Doyle was also responsible for finding the dead sheep that is thrown at Chapman at one point in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doyle said that him and the special effects guy, John Horton, I don't know if it's any relation, um, drove around in a van to find one. They finally found one, but it was green and bloated. And Doyle remembers that he had to drive back with it, with it in his car and his head had to be out the window because it smelled so bad inside the car. Uh, Chapman Lair said that he heard the sheep had been dead for a few weeks once it was thrown on top of him. It seems everyone was being tested on set. Michael Palin was known to be the most agreeable of the pythons. <laughs> and during the scene when he was playing the mud eater, Palin lost it. I, I guess this is during when they're talking about um, uh, like British politics or whatever. I think yeah. that's, um, <laughs> that's one thing I, I forgot to bring out when we were talking about that scene. I love like the dialogue so good. You're not even really paying attention, but they're literally making mud pies. Like, yeah. Yeah, like you do when you're kids. He said he was having to do several takes of crawling through the mud for this long tracking shot. At the end, he was going to have to eat some mud, but the prop person assured him that he had put chocolate in the mud, so Palin would be fine. Palin asked, "But how do I find the chocolate? It all looks the same." The prop person didn't answer him and just like yeah. walked away. Yeah, there's what? There's absolutely <laughs> it's all they're on the ground. Do you cover the, the ground, entire ground in chocolate? It's what? all mud. They feel like one part of it was chocolate. Uh, Palin would then do seven takes of the scene, not complaining, and essentially eating mud in every take. After the seventh time when they wanted to go again, suddenly he began screaming, throwing himself in the air, rolling around the mud, yelling, this is a fucking waste of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he finally calmed down and the set was completely silent until John Cleese and, and Graham Chapman broke out into an applause because he was because Cleese said he just he, he should have been upset. We were getting like treated like terrible on those days. <laughs> Jones, Terry Jones, Larry say co-director Larry say I've never seen Michael so beside himself with rage. It was a great tracking shot of the village that Terry Gilliam set up, though you don't see Mike in it at all. So it was a shot that's not even in the movie, mm-hmm. and he had to do this. Yeah, I was about to say, as many times as I've seen that movie, I don't remember Michael Palin putting mud in his mouth. Nope, so. that was cut. So it was cut. Uh, and wow. speaking of directors, Gilliam and Jones had a very interesting way of working, it seems. Uh, they would trade off days where Gilliam <laughs> would do one, and then Jones would do the next. Uh, and it seems the rest of the cast was becoming frustrated with them as directors. Um, Cleese remembers one scene with him him and Idol, and they nailed this great moment, this great comedic moment, and Cleese was so excited. Jones yells cut, and Cleese turns around excited like, how about that? And Jones looked at him blankly and said, not enough smoke. <laughs> uh, Cleese became so upset, and for the rest of shooting after each take, Cleese would ask, was there enough smoke? <laughs> um, he said it was the single most annoying thing anyone had ever said to him. But Cleese's biggest blow up, however, occurred during the Trojan rabbit scene, they were having to kneel in knee pads. They were apparently very uncomfortable. They were like in the foreground or in the background or whatever, watching the Trojan rabbit being taken to the the, the castle. 
Clee mm-hmm. said, Gliam then asked, can you move an inch in a northwesterly direction for like the fifth time? And Cleese then shouted, we're not the bits of paper you use for animating. <laughs> Probably with a few extra words thrown in there. Uh, Gilliam took that badly and stormed off set, not coming back for the rest of the day. Yeah, sounds about right. Cleese soon realized that he couldn't stay at the same hotel as everyone. So he went to another hotel miles away that had hot water and a warm pool. He said, what I do is go back there after a punishing day, swim, shower, and then go alone to a restaurant in Sterling. I'd sit quietly, eat beautiful food, drink a bottle of white burgundy, and read books in this little ocean of sanity. People would come over and say, you look so lonely. Would you like to join us? And yet I was the most emphatically happy I'd been all day <laughs> because, I'm a, because I'm a little, I'm a quiet little creature. Talk about Cleese is the posh guy of the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems Chapman and Palin would have a good time back at their hotel because they spent most of their time at the bar, uh, like playing games or whatever. And and and, and Chapman would like would flirt, or, or or if the barmaids would flirt with Chapman, he's like, "No, you don't want me. No, I'm no, I'm terrible." Um, <laughs> they would also play soccer, football, if you're in England, uh, while on set. Palin says they'd be playing up the soggy hillsides, and you would see Graham standing there waiting for the ball, smoking his pipe. And then he would awkwardly kick the ball to someone else. Uh, but but Khalees was apparently really good at playing. Um, Terry Jones would say those nights were frenetic and sleepless for him because he was so focused on directing. He said he remembers having to build a set for Witch Village and it had not been finished the night before shooting. He then realized the next morning once it was finished that he was the main character in the scene that he hadn't learned any of his lines for that day. <laughs> uh, and while it might seem like there was a lot of improv done set, there wasn't any. Everything was scripted. Mm-hmm. Um, Palin would say they had the entire script written. They would they'd probably rewrite the scene like ten minutes before and then do what they just wrote. So like it wasn't. Like it's like it was somewhat. It was never improv, but everything was scripted because everyone kind of said like they thought Cleese forgot his line. We did the Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, call me Tim, and he's like, no, we didn't improv anything. Everything was the way it was written. But one of the worst scenes for Cleese was when he was playing Tim the Enchanter because he was having to stay on this pretty high cliff on one side was a drop. He said that could have killed him and on the other side was a drop. He said that could have maimed him to make matters worse. The wind kept threatening to push him over on either side uh, between takes. He would crouch down to avoid being pushed over by the wind. Uh, the whole experience. One of he remembers is being very frightening, but he did it anyway because he knew what kind of budget and timelines that the whole, the whole team were under. Um, Cause he was wearing that big horned hat Mm-hmm. and he seems like wearing like multiple layers that were probably old outfits for the witches from Macbeth on some stage version uh for his enchanter outfit for the black knight sequence uh they, they got a one-legged stand-in and they put an artificial leg on him they chopped off to make like he lost one leg and they buried that guy in a hole uh for hours apparently with his one leg in there and they pulled him out and he was like his leg was totally numb and they were just like, Oh no, what do we do? (laughs) But he he was okay. Okay. When it came to shooting the big crowd scenes, they had very little money to hire extras. So all the extras they got were either local students or tourists who were visiting the area for the day in Scotland. They put in the, and then they all learned the, uh, the choreography for the, uh, there's that. Yeah. I think, I think that one's, I think that's all tourists. And I think like, I hate the big battle sequence. Like it's just like they they didn't have costumes for them. They just put they gave them like banners and weapons to hold up, so they wouldn't be seen uh, in the wide shots. So Brandon, I've I've always heard 
the the like urban legend I've always heard uh, was that they shot that last battle scene because they just ran out of money. They had something else planned and they couldn't afford it. Is that is that true? I don't, I don't think it is because what it sounds like they said from the beginning, it was always supposed to be anticlimactic is mm-hmm. what like Grant Graham Chapman was very big on like, we should just make it where they never get the grail. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like that was always the plan was just then to end it right there and just be like, yep, they didn't get it. They, they, they got arrested for the murder of the historian. They that, didn't even like, kill him. They had killed him. They just, they just, they just, they just like hurt him real bad. No, they weren't. They didn't do it though. Right. I don't know who did it, but I guess they're getting, they're being blamed for because they're the it's ones. It's just, it's just kind of like a random knight on a, like comes by and like lances him. Uh, yeah. Then, I don't he's think on a horse. And he's on a horse too, it's right? On an actual horse, yeah. It's on an actual horse. And, I don't think and it's any of. I don't think it's any of Arthur's. But they get, but they get blamed for it. No, yeah. everything. Everything I've read, none of it says like, "Oh, we ran out of money." Uh, now, granted, they did get done shooting and realize, "Oh crap, we missed a lot." Um, so I think like the Lancelot sequence. That's what happens him, when like, your producers are rock stars? stars. I, I I feel like the scene when Lancelot's running. From one of the things I read, I think it was a pickup. Like they shot somewhere at a park in like England, and they put the camera so far away that no one would see them shooting Lancel. Him just running is what it mm-hmm. was. Um, and I know, uh, I think like I'll, or I, one big thing that was added later was the storybook. They realized oh, okay. they need they needed stuff to put in to tie things together, stuff they couldn't shoot or whatever, or, or didn't or they needed. And so mm-hmm. they put the storybook in there and that was shot on Terry Gilliam's like living room floor. And his wife was the one, I think, turning the pages or something. And then like the baby boy is actually Michael Palin's kid that the of the knight who was not in the movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, my last th- or two things. Uh, the most damage they did, however, on set was during the killer rabbit scene. Uh, the lady who owned the bunny didn't want to get dirty or messed up. So they tried to keep her distracted when they dyed it with blood, <laughs> God. apparently she was very upset because the dye they used did not immediately come off. Is what oh, it was. No. Uh, the one thing too, a bunch, cause this happened a lot with this, this, with this, with, this, with the movies, what they said is how, like, because they were so limited budget, it allowed them to kind of like really create random things that they never would have thought of. And the big thing was the coconut shells because they wanted to have real horses. That was the plan was from the have real horses but they couldn't afford real horses. Mm. So they're just like, let's just do the coconut like of the old, because it's an old sound trick. Cause that's how they do horses on old mo- horses on old movies. And that's what the plan was, was to do, to do that. Um, so the film would finally wrap. It started in April of 1974. It would finally wrap on June 12th, 1974. And you would think that the production was so disastrous. Hopefully the editing would not be as disastrous. Yeah, but it was disastrous. Um, So in in the aftermath, as they had to shoot up many pickups and reshoots because they realized they missed a lot. uh, Gilliam and Jones disagreed on the edit a lot. Apparently, Jones said it took almost a year to edit the actual film. They threw out the entire soundtrack at one point and used only stock music they found somewhere. Um, Gilliam would sneak in at night and re-edit the film because he was not happy with Jones's cuts. And I think even the editor wasn't happy with ter- what Terry Jones was doing. So there's like constant battle back and forth. I think they played Gilliam's first cut 
at a test audience and no one laughed. Oh man. Apparently they never had a good reaction to the film until it premiered in LA. Like during all <laughs> the, 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 the test audiences or whatever, it never went well. One thing that happened in the editing, uh, Michael Palin suggested the opening titles because he didn't think the audience would be sitting there. Wa- he didn't want the audience to be sitting there watching the credits. So he add the whole moose and Swedish stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently they also didn't have enough money for a title opening so I could only mostly use black and white text because it was cheaper. Yep. And so how put in a joke here. And that was to do that. Um, as I said, too, when talking about doing well at L.A., it did well. It, it ended up doing better in the U.S., uh, I guess, audience wise, because at this point, Monty Python had begun being shown on U.S. television for the first time. Mm. Uh, it started being shown PBS in 1974. So a year before this film came out and it was after the show had actually ended in, in the UK. And so the U S it was very hot with like what Monty Python was doing. And so it was released on April 15th, 1975. So 10 months, uh, after the film finished completing shooting, which is a very long time, I think for this period, like mm-hmm. it, 10 months is a long time for editing process. This, this moment in time for a film that costs so little, um it was mixed upon its release uh like uh, one of our guys that we talk about a lot eber did not review this apparently i couldn't find an eber review on it hmm. but G- but gene siskel reviewed it gave it two and a half stars and he felt it contained about 10 very funny moments and 70 minutes of silence <laughs> uh too many of the jokes took too long to set up a trait shared both by blazing saddles and young frankenstein I guess I prefer Monty Python and Chunks in its original television review format. So he didn't like, it sounded like he didn't like any of Mel Brooks's stuff either. Variety said it's basically an excuse for set pieces, some amusing and others overdone. And it wasn't until much later that the, audi- the audiences really kind of, fa- or audiences kind of took it over and it gained more of a positive uh, reaction over time. And it ended up like, I, I think one of the things, I think Eric Idle or someone said like, uh, in New York, the first weekend, they saw like Gilda Radner and John Belushi coming out. So again, going with that idea of like what's happening in the comedy scene at this point in America, and Monty Python's kind of pushing it um, forward in a way, and mm-hmm. it ends up being seen by many as one of the greatest comedies of all time. Uh, and it's funny because most of the Monty much much of the Pythons, if not all of them, think it's not their best film. <laughs> they think that Life, Life of Brian's their best film. Mm-hmm. I think because it sounds like they had such a hard time making this movie, they're just like, yeah, I can't watch it. It's just, it reminds me of so like, how much, how difficult it was to shoot this movie. Um, Cleese says it's about 60% of good movie is what he thinks. Wow. So yeah, it, it's not as well beloved from the Pythons as it is by audiences. So yeah. So Thomas, what worked about this movie against everything that Cleese and the, and the critics have said? Yeah, I mean, I think like we said before, I think the fact that they went out of their way to shoot it like an actual King Arthur movie really helps. Uh, I think that is really one of the defining lines as to whether you're going to be a successful parody film or just a bunch of jokes about recent movies is is whether or not you actually commit to making it its own movie. And, and they yeah. definitely do. And and I also think just as you can tell from the way that we talked about our favorite sequences, I do think their sketch 
sensibility really helped with this film because it is essentially a feature length episode of Flying Circus, except if they were to say, let's make this whole episode just about King Arthur. And and yeah. I think that works. I think that absolutely works yeah. here. Shouldn't shouldn't always work. Shouldn't necessarily work, you know, <laughs> off the bat. But but the this group of guys like we were talking about, we're also kind of diverse in their comedy styles and their interests that that I think they're able to all pull it off. And and yeah. And while I do I do love Life of Brian, I, I think this one is more rewatchable than Life of Brian. I think yeah. Life of Brian functions more as a movie, but I think it is more kind of the sketch. Life of Brian has more of a narrative thread, whereas yes. this one has yes. kind of more of a sketch feeling to it, which makes it more rewatchable. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's an easier watch because of that. I think Brian has funny moments, but I think I feel like the biggest quotable thing for uh, like again out of the, my group of friends that watched Monty Python growing up uh, in high school, I feel like the most quotable thing is the it's always the uh, always look on the bright mm-hmm. side of life, Doo-doo. and it's and it's funny because uh, to kind of show you is that when they do the musical for Spamalot, which is basically this uh they take that song from life of brian and put it in spam a lot mm-hmm. so like it's it's you can tell what what was the easier thing to kind of like mold into something else and holy mm-hmm. grail is kind of that but they're not they're, you can tell they're not really they don't really feel even though there is a, a narrative here they they don't really feel held to it no you know for instance like you know they're, they're being chased around by the monster and then they decide all right we're done with the monster sequence the yeah. illustrator had a heart attack and died right, on, to, <laughs> on to the next thing. Um, and so I think that that helps them in this, in this one is that there's really never other than, like we said, kind of the, the, the sirens, there's never a dull moment or, or a moment that doesn't have a joke like yeah. ever. It's just wall to wall jokes because they never felt like, Oh, we have to, we have to take a minute and talk plot here. It's just, yeah. Just filled wall to wall with jokes. And you know, you said too about terms of how, how it commits the the tone. It's like it. There's a lot of insight. I mean, like the the Brit the British politics thing. I mean, there's a lot of inside jokes of like the time mm-hmm. they're commenting on or making fun of of like just the King Arthur and the idea of royalty at this point in time. Of like, who are you king of? We, we didn't vote for you. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, it's nothing you vote on. What is that? That's a dictatorship. Like, it's 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 very much a comment on a lot of different things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Currently, one thing that I definitely didn't get when I was a kid was I, I think I I think what they're saying with the sequence, you know, I just thought it was a funny song when they were like, oh, let's go to Camelot. And then they cut to everybody singing and dancing. I just thought that was a funny song. You know, when you grow up and you become aware of like Robert Goulet and Camelot and like the yeah. musical, you're like, oh, they're saying yeah. like, oh, we don't want anything to do with like yeah. that, that kind of like Broadway Camelot. No, no, thank you. Um <laughs> But but it just it's a funny song anyway. So if you have absolutely no idea that there's a musical Camelot, it, it doesn't matter. Like you you just yeah. think it's a funny song. Yeah, you're just like that place is kind of silly. Let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just kind of works. I think it works itself of just like because of what they do with it. You, again, like you said, you don't need to know the joke that the reference it's making. It, it, it works by itself. Um, and I think that's the key is that these jokes work by themselves. I don't have to see Brisson's Lance Lance a lot to find this funny. I don't have to see Bergman or Pasolini to get the way it looks. I think it, they, they nail it without even having to know all that stuff. Um, and yeah, I think, I think them as like a, a whole cast, 
I just find it so crazy to think, and they have other actors and actresses in this movie, but they're able to play so many different roles. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not bumped by it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, they all work every time. I'm not like, oh, that's just Eric. Like, like Eric Idle or Terry Jones can be in, be two characters within the same scene. <laughs> and I think nothing of it yeah. is the thing. And that's a talent that it's hard to do. And that's them. That's the filmmaking. That's all of it. Yeah. Hair, um, makeup and costumes. Um, yeah. I had a, I, I don't know if this is true, but I had a history teacher tell me one time that like, the costumes are so accurate in this that like some people point to this as like one of the most accurate like medieval time costumes as far as like movies go like they actually i mean obviously they have like silly logos on their suits of armor but like the armor checks out and the way that they wear it and the way they layer it is all fairly accurate yeah i know chapman is actually wearing like a real metal like armor like like Mm -hmm. like chain link armor or whatever um, I wouldn't be surprised by that from what it sounds like they sp- again they spent a lot most of their money on costumes was what they spent their most the most of the money on because everything else they were just like we got one camera we got I think by the end of shooting they had like it was like they had producers running sound or whatever it was like it was very <laughs> much like they low rent we just need they, two castles and the Scottish moors and we're, we're good. yeah it's like the budget was forty thousand four hundred thousand dollars US wise in 75 wow so that would be that would be a 2.2 million dollar movie today is what it would be that's kind of insane to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's yeah that's insane that'd be a 2.2 million dollar movie today if it's made and it has so much production value for a movie that's so cheaply so cheap and like you said i think costumed i think that's what i think they realized okay what's gonna make this movie sell shooting in scotland and dreary scotland in the middle of a rainy season basically and then costumes and everything else is just going to be whatever we can get essentially um okay did anything not work besides wow. we, we said this we said the siren scene i think that scene just goes on too long there's a point where i was just, okay cool i get the bit i get i, I get what we're doing here and we're not adding th- adding anything to it if you I, I feel like i should say i know people who hate the ending i don't have a problem with the ending I like the ending. I don't know how you end this movie necessarily, and I, and I think they definitely went with the most off the wall answer they could come up with. Yeah, um, it's definitely entirely unexpected when you're when you're watching it for the first time. But like, what does it matter? <laughs> like, what happens? If they find the Grail. Like, who cares? Like, I think <laughs> I think that's kind of the idea. Is like these characters are after the grail. We don't know why they're after the grail. They're just want to, ha- they want to go get the grail because yeah, God, it's told kind them of the, to. God told them to, but it's, there's no bearing of like, what, what do they get when they get it? It's just to, just to have the thing. And so it doesn't matter. Just like they get arrested at the end. It doesn't, I, I think it makes sense for their chaotic sense of humor mm-hmm. is the thing. Um, so I've never hated the ending. Um, but yeah, I can see like, I, I got, that's part of the joke is that Ch- again, Chapman said like, yeah, I think it'd be anti-climatic. They'll probably hate it, but it's fine to us. Mm-hmm. Like we just never, we never get the grail. Like again, compare it to what it could have been the original draft of like, they go rob a department store. I think in present day to get the grail. Like that just doesn't. That's what, what year is, what year just, is Blazing Saddles? Uh, I think that's 73. 
it, uh, that in, in my mind i'm sure that it i'm sure it would have played out differently but in my mind that feels like like blazing saddles if it just like the movie just spilled over into present day yeah. and then they went to harrods 74 74 yeah. yeah it's just yeah it's just like harrods department store he has everything yeah and and but i, I but the thing is i don't think it's weird because you but you do have the present day sequence of like the historian stuff coming in mm-hmm. but like i feel like you can't go full on present day like Bla- right. for some reason Bla- blazing saddles kind of makes sense because like it's parroting a very specific Hollywood thing. And that's a Western. So it mm-hmm. makes sense to do that. This is not really a parody of modern society fully. Right. It's of a, it's of an older time and it's better just to have that chaos come in later instead of throughout is the thing. And not, not in a big way. I don't know. I just, man, it's hard to explain hard to make sense, but yeah, I can see why people don't like it because it's not your traditional ending. There's no big payoff of the grail. There's no, I guess, catharsis to them finding it. But I don't know if this mo- this movie doesn't need it. It's yeah. like, I think it's a good ending of a sketch at the end of the day. <laughs> um, and that's what they, they said. They said they basically what they try to do with, with the movie was that they try to take the scene and then cut out the punchline. So that created more of a scene that just transitioned to the next scene, basically. Mm-hmm. I have no alternate universe cast. So... <laughs> There's that. Uh, film facts. Uh, can you guess who played the most roles in the movie? Uh, Terry Jones. Nope. Michael Palin. Michael Palin. I told you he's the, he's the uh, he's the utility. He has twelve roles in this movie. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, so when the movie was shown at Cannes Film Festival, someone called in a bomb threat to the theater while the movie was going on which forced uh, firemen to come in and, and, and evacuate the theater after the opening credits. People were expecting hijinks and the pythons, and they thought that, that this thing was hilarious because they thought it was all part of the act. They were going to be ejected from the theater, uh, but actually was a bomb threat. Cleese was inspired to write the Black Knight scene because of a story he heard in elementary school about two Roman wrestlers during an extremely intense and scrappy match, one wrestler finally tapped out, only to discover that his opponent had died during the struggle, meaning he had <laughs> posthumously won the bat, won the match. So it was basically like, oh, like you can't lose if you don't quit, and that was the whole Black Knight sequence came from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camelot apparently was a model, like when it's like, oh, it's just a model that mm-hmm. actually was like a twelve, like a it's only a, a model, foot tall model. Uh, I said Graham Chapman was the only member of the cast to wear real chain length chain mail armor. It weighed about 25 pounds. The rest of the cast wore knitted wool painted to look like metal. Hmm. Uh, oh yeah. Chapman also, I think could give tetanus shots. He, he, he was like, had like somewhat like medical training. So he was able to give tetanus shot to people. And that's what people got on the set. Cause of how crazy, cause of like what they were in with the mud and with the, in the mountains or whatever. Uh, so yeah, uh, the movie, <laughs> again, big fan, b- musicians were a big fan of the Pythons. Apparently one of my favorite story, the two stories I have besides the ones about people donating, getting money to it. Uh, apparently I ran a Johnny cash on a talk show one time and he walked in, he just goes, Hey, John cash, big fan walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and the biggest one, apparently Elvis Presley. Saw the movie four times in theaters and took his friends to it, then screened it 45 times at Graceland. Oh, my God. 
he also consistently quoted Monty Python Flying Circus in real life. He called everyone Squire because of the I think, nudge nudge sketch from Flying Circus. Uh, and that one of his ex-girlfriends who was, I think, friends with Terry Jones later told him like he would make he would make me like perform the scene. Like, we would perform the scenes together is what it was like he was so obsessed with monty python and terry oh jones God. like terry jones like that's insane because like he's one of my favorite musicians of all time and i can't believe he knows who we are what is it with musicians and parody movies we talked about back in our we walk hard if, yeah, if we you go back hard. to our walk hard episode the 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 earliest adopters of that film were musicians <laughs> same with spinal tap same thing they loved spinal tap all right so story questions <laughs> having story questions <laughs> do the charges do the charges stick they have no evidence they have evidence yeah i don't, I don't think just, so it was he was run through with a lance wasn't he if i yeah did they hit him with a sword or with a lance i thought it was his lance maybe it was a sword yeah no those guys carry a lance yeah ballistics the ballistics aren't gonna line ballistics, up yeah <laughs> they have video footage right like just go back to the tape oh yeah that's true they were filmed <laughs> <They're laughs> <filming know>. <laughs> poor police work how did Sir Galahad get off by himself to the sirens? Because he just he gets there. I mean, how how is this played out? Because he gets there, Lancelot rescues him, but then the Lancelot tale is afterwards, and and Galahad's not with him anymore. Like, mm. so how does is how does that all play out tale wise? Like, are they all separated? Great, they are just all kind of independently roaming around England, going into random castles and killing people. Because like they go where like they're all separate before Arthur finds them all like a heist movie, gets them all together, and they separate again, and they come back together again. So it's just a weird like what what's the like why they all go off to get, go off by themselves is kind of my <laughs> thing. And then why is if Lancelot rescues Galahad, why does Galahad not be there the next time? Did he just go. Did he go back to the sirens? Do you think Gal? That's the question. Do you think Galahad ever went back to the sirens? Granted, he did die. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he went back. Moving on to awards. Beatrice Strait Award. Actor actual scenes that kills it. Huh. Limited scenes. I have a I have I have a guy. Okay, who do you have? Where is he at? Where is he at? I think it's Neil Ennis, who is the leader of Robin's Minstrels. Because I think I think that song is amazing. Okay. Yeah. And he, he pops up a few other times, but that's the one like I'm surprised that role is not played by a Python. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like that's the one like Claire Claire Cleveland who plays Zoot and Dingo, I think it's fine. But again, I don't really love that scene. Um, but I think in terms of like lines that I think are quotable and I think are have an impact on me, it's 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 robin's it's the same brave brave sir robin the robin yeah i guess because you could see that being michael palin yeah that could be michael palin but it's not yeah all right i back that one more thing that i want to say so uh uh it's kind of film facts and and she's in the movie so it's kind of, she could be beatrice straight but she doesn't have a lot to do that's connie booth who plays miss elsington who's the witch or she plays the witch is what it is mm-hmm uh actually john cleese's wife at the time oh okay. of the movie they were married for uh, a decade but yeah i think neil ennis is the person for beatrice Strait. bravely bold sir robin brought forth from camelot he was not afraid to die oh brave sir robin 
He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Pray, 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 Sir Robin. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp. Or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken. To have his kneecap split and his body burned away. And his limbs all hacked and mangled, pray, Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils raped and his bottom burnt off and his penis... That's... that's, uh, that's enough music for now, lads. A. Potts X Factor Award. Supporting actor, actresses, the most memorable. How do we, how do we do this one? I'm wondering that too. Weird territory here. Because there, because there really is, if there is a lead, it's Graham Chapman. Mm-hmm. I think we give it to Michael Palin for establishing that he played the most supporting characters. I think so too. I think so too. But I think Michael Palin gets because he plays the like, I feel like the supporting characters that like could like could easily fall by the way. Because I think Galahad, as it has kind of the worst tale, mm-hmm. but Palin elevates every other scene he's in that he's Yeah, I was about not. to say, uh, it might honestly be because he's not supporting in that yeah in that sketch you know what i mean like he by having to play the straight man in that sketch we lose him being able to be one of the comedic characters i agree old woman man ma'am sorry what knight lives in that castle over there i'm 37 what i'm 37 i'm not old well i can't just call you ma'am you could say dennis I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Gene Hackman MVP Award. Actor, actress, director, writer who carries the movie. Who do you have? <laughs> Wait, I want, I'm curious who you have now. because I would think... probably also say Michael Palin. <laughs> I mean, he's my favorite. Uh, I, think he makes, I think he makes the movie. I, I think... You know, a lot of people, a lot of people, it's not my favorite scene, but a lot of people say the mud, the mud farming scene is, is the best in the movie. Uh-huh. And, and that's, that's, on, that's because of him. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite sequence is because of him. I, I don't know. I feel like we could give it to them all as a whole. I, I do think the, the idea, like I've said before, of, of the fact that this movie is this combination of all their own sensibilities does make it, it is what makes it strong. Um, So you could say Monty Python is is the x factor here that's what that's my vote you know that's mvp mvp monty python it might be the easy choice but it might be the best choice Mm -hmm. so let's go with monty python as the mvp there are other actors in this movie there are other actors or or is led zeppelin and pink floyd the mvps (laughs) i don't know i don't know sir robin yes brave sir robin you go hey i've got a great idea why doesn't lancelot go Yes, let me go, my liege. I will take it single-handed. I shall make a feint to the northeast. No, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Just answer the five questions. Three questions. Three questions as best you can. And we shall watch and pray. I understand, my liege. Good luck, brave Sir Lancelot. God be with you. 
across the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Uh, the other side, he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Final questions. If this film was remade today, who would you cast, Thomas? I have absolutely no idea how you pull this off. <laughs> okay, Broken okay. lizard. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> how do you? Let's just, okay, let's just do anyone who's been in SNL. Pick from that group. All right. Okay. And they do all the, so, so Bill Hader. Yeah. Anyone from the past 20 years, I think. Bill Hader, Bill, obviously. Bill, Bill Hader. Who, who is Bill Hader? Who, who is the equivalent in this? I like to think of Bill Hader as a Michael Palin type. Especially when he, he's gotten more in the last couple of years with like Barry, he's broken out as a lead man. But like when he was on SNL, he was a utility player. Like he was the person yeah. who disappeared into his roles. Um, okay. Okay. I'll stick with that for right now. I'm fine with whereas that. Whereas someone, you know, you, you always have a guy, you always have someone on SNL who is like not a character guy and is always just like, yeah. and that's that I feel like that was Sudeikis. So yeah. I feel like he's definitely like a Cleese. I was thinking Sudeikis more King Arthur for some reason. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. I think he'd be King Arthur. Okay, Sudeikis is King Arthur. Haters, Palin. Oh no, I think Taron Gilliam is actually King Arthur. Taron Gilliam, yeah, yeah, Ta- yes. Ta- Taron Ta- Gilliam. Taron Ta- 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 Gilliam, King Arthur. Ta- yeah, I think it's King Arthur. Sudeikis um, is Cleese. I want, I want Kate McKinnon as Terry Jones. <laughs> I- I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Samberg as Eric Idle. Boom. And, and then Keenan Thompson is Terry Gilliam. Yes. I would love Keenan Thompson at the Bridge of Insanity. Yes. <laughs> so who we got? We got Bill Hader as Palin. Mm-hmm. Taryn Gilliam as King Arthur. Khalees is Jason Sudeikis. You said Kate McKinnon as Terry Jones. Mm-hmm. Keenan Thompson as Terry Gilliam. Who is Eric Idle? Who'd you say for Eric Idle? Oh, Sandberg. Sandberg. Okay, yeah, Andy Sandberg. Yeah, okay. Sounds like there's six guys. There's six Monty Python people. Yeah. All right, I like that cast. I like that cast. <laughs> All right. Uh, does this film fit with any other genres? Yeah, I mean, like you know, once again, I've said this a couple times this movie, but I think to really make a good parody movie, you have to, Become in that. some form, visually, Yeah. How, however, you have to strive to make a movie within that genre itself. And and I, I think they do a very good job here in making yeah. this a medieval movie from the costumes to the locations, to the way it's yeah. shot They're They're obviously buying into the medieval of it all. Yeah. I mean, I think not everyone agrees with me, but I really think as I said earlier, you have to like love a genre mm-hmm. in order to like deconstruct it or make fun of it in some yeah. way. Um, in, in a real, like in a real true way, not just like make jokes about like a date movie or whatever. Um, some might disagree, but I, I think that's, that's where I think elevates it more is if you have a true passion for it. And so I think if Terry Jones is so big in the medieval stuff, like he is or was at the time when they're making it, um, that might have an effect on this. I also call it a road trip movie because yeah. they are traveling from place to place and trying, and they're seeking something. Mm-hmm. something that they have to travel to to get um so i would say it definitely fits in that category if they actually got the grail could be a heist movie i don't know 
because he does like set up a team of people, his trusty knights, knights of Camelot. Uh, last question: How does this film fit within the parody genre? I think it's I think it's one of the, one of the greats. Yeah, until in terms of like t- what what's it what it does, what you're saying is that it, it yeah it it tries to be be what it's making fun of essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and I think it established early on in the genre that it could be that you could make a feature film that was just a bunch of bits connected as long as the bits were strong and you knew how to connect them specifically in this movie they connected them with more bits which i think i think does lend itself as the genre goes on to to movies like you know this is this isn't necessarily one of those like gag a moment movies like the zuckers did in the states which we'll be talking about next week um yeah but I do think it kind of lends itself with that idea that like never let up, you know? Yeah. And and so we'll get more into that kind of like sight gag. Absolutely everything is a sight gag uh, next yeah, yeah, week. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. The, the idea that you just you have to keep the energy up. And if you can keep that energy up and you can, you know, really nail the atmosphere of the film that you're doing, I think I think you're you're well on your way at that point for a good parody film. I agree. I think one thing, too. I'll say this here now, and I don't know if this is parody or if this is my comment on comedy or mind comedy. I feel like there is something you gain when you actually script the script. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? It's like, I think with modern comedy today, I think we lose a little bit because it's so mile a minute jokes and it's more like we'll improv on set in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think you lose something. And this is why probably why TV is so much stronger. A lot of times with comedy, I think nowadays is it because you actually workshop ideas? And I think what's so beneficial with these guys is that they're it's all six of them working together to make it. So why improv if all six of you are already helping write the thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that that allows you. We we talked about the strength of the shooting style and the editing in this movie, and yeah. and, and unfortunately, I enjoy a lot of those kind of improv movies in later years, but that does take away from, because you do have to kind of set up a wide and let it roll when people are improving. It does reduce the visual humor. You can squeeze into yes. something and, yes. and it reduces the, the kind of cutting for humor that you can do. So yeah, I, I we'll, we'll talk. I, I don't know if we'll talk later in the month about ones that we love that we weren't able to, to touch on, <laughs> but there's, there's a very recent, uh, parody film that didn't really go anywhere and i tell i tell everyone about it every chance i get and it's from it's got a lot of people in it who are of the more improv yeah apatow era but you can tell that they're not playing it like that they're playing you know a really scripted yeah. gag a minute parody film and it's really interesting to see those people yeah. that you're kind of not used to being in that type of movie and that's probably why yeah. it bombed but interesting i'll go i'll go into it it's they came together I oh yeah absolutely adore that film yeah that was i want to watch that one because that was one i i actually saw it when at sundance when it came out i was i was i was there at the premiere of it and i was like <laughs> that was fun that was fun and you're like the world's not the world's not going to recognize the genius of this world we're, we're yeah, I mean, ready even, for this the i mean it's made by the same group of guys who yeah. did david, uh, david wayne who did yeah yeah who, who did wet hot american summer which is a little bit more scripted not as improvised they did wanderlust which i love but is very you know just kind of set the camera up and let i mean it was so improvised they were able to cut it twice because there are just so many jokes in it uh 
but i think that one does it, it has that energy of more like all right we're going to make this joke and then we're going to cut to this physical gag yeah. and then we're going to have this going on in the background that's also a sight gag and and i do think we've lost that energy in the last like 20 years we talked about this i think last week at the apartment uh with billy wilder where it's like it's very everything's very scripted and that allows you to do more things visually majority of the time um than if you're like just making it like you're just basically let's get a lot on set and then we'll make the decision in editing and there is something to that i'm not discrediting it but it's it's difficult it's not fun when every comedy is that way mm-hmm. is, is kind of my thing and i think sometimes the industry can pivot a certain way where like because one thing does so well now they all have to be that way but yeah, so next week, Thomas, what are we talking about next week with parody genre? So next week we'll be talking about Top Secret, which is a spy parody, not not like James Bond spy, but more like the American World War II spy films. And it is definitely one of those sight gag every minute type of movies. It is also the world's introduction to an actor known as Val Kilmer. So um not as well known of the american parody mel brooks zucker schools but one that is beloved by the the people who do who have seen it so hopefully hopefully some of you out there love it and are excited for us to cover it hopefully some of you will discover it and watch it and and listen along so yeah yeah it's it's currently it's currently on two weird streaming sir it's on uh max go on cinemax if you have Mm. cinemax uh it says cbs can you can you still do cbs is that still a thing i thought that was just paramount no i thought it was paramount too (laughs) it's yeah so maybe it's not so it says it says on cbs but i don't know if you can so it might be on paramount plus um if not you can rent it on amazon or wherever your movie's at amazon uh google play voodoo direct if you have direct tv you can get that way or apple uh but yeah that's next week but I think this week, I think that's it on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It, make sure if you're a fan of the show or you're a new listener, uh, subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys. New year, new you, new review. <laughs> Let's go. We want to hear from you. I like that. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. Tom's as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.